Father, we are privileged to call you just that. I, I don't want the word to just roll out of my mouth and uh, fall out of my mouth and roll off my tongue without consideration or thought. Uh, you are a heavenly Father, uh, not just a distant force, being far away, disinterested, but you reveal yourself to us as one who loves us, cares for us, leads us like a father. Uh, we rejoice in that. Um, and even, Lord, the, the phrase of that song that we've just sung, the King of Heaven. So you are both Father, personally, intimately connected and concerned about us. And yet you are also the King of Heaven. And so we are privileged. Um, we are privileged, Lord, beyond what we can understand. I pray as we come to the text this morning that it would not just be lesson time, that this would not just be a book of stories, but that this would be a place where through your revealed will and through what your Holy Spirit illuminates, we would be transformed. Uh, So we count it a privilege to be yours, your sons and daughters, and to have your revealed will here for us to study and to know and to impart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it has been said that there are only two seasons in Alaska, right? There's winter and getting ready for winter, right? Well, so that's it. That's all there is. Everything else is just pretend. Um, this is the time of year, you know, when we, of course, we're all buttoning up, uh, preparing for what's coming. I won't even say the words, uh, but we're preparing, you know. Uh, I spent the, this weekend flushing out the uh, outdoor water lines uh, so they wouldn't freeze. Did some leaf raking, uh, you know, the lawnmower is going to get its last use, I think, this afternoon, and then be put away. And um, uh, this is the time when we, we finish up all of those last-minute projects. The garage is... Um, at least cleared, not cleaned, because that doesn't seem to ever happen, but cleared so we can get our cars moved in, and uh, hopefully the woodshed is ready to deliver all the goods uh, for the winter ahead. Um, But if you're like me, you have a couple of uh, projects that aren't yet done, right? Um, For me, I've got, uh, first of all, I've got the, the deck out back, that didn't get stained this year. It's really overdue. And um, I told my wife I'd do it, and I haven't done it. And in my defense, I would say, we haven't had two sunny days in a row, like all summer long, you know. The, anyways, you're not buying my excuse, I can tell. <laughs> nope. Uh, then there's the sheetrock behind the front door where the door has come and hit it and caved in. I need to fix that. And then there's this transition strip from the entryway into the dining room, and that's been broken for like two years, and I need to fix that. Actually, maybe even more. Um, and the, so I, I imagine it works the same way in your house. The colder it gets, the more we move inside. The more you move inside, the more you realize I didn't do that outside yet, and this is inside still needing to be dealt with. And these projects kind of call out to you. They get your attention. They're maybe even a little condemning of you, uh, but they grab, they call for our attention. They grab our attention. And so it is with Nehemiah. Uh, If you'll open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. And actually, you may feel like, well, we're starting a new book here, but in some senses, we're not. In the Hebrew arrangement of the scriptures, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book, two parts of one continuous book telling one continuous story. 
And so we're picking up uh, really where we have left off. Uh, if you remember, we had the exiles uh, in Babylon, the Jewish people who are now returning home. And the first wave came home under the capable leadership of Zerubbabel. And their first task was to rebuild the temple, which had been destroyed under Nebuchadnezzar's attack. So they were to rebuild the temple. And if you'll remember, they ran into opposition there and overcame that by God's grace and got on with the building of the project. And it was completed for those who came in the second wave under Ezra. They came 80 years later or 60 years after the completion of the temple. And um, they when the second wave arrived, you'll remember, they were deeply discouraged to find out that those who had come in the first wave um, didn't just have this, this uh, flourishing faith going, but in fact they had compromised their faith by intermarrying with the foreigners that God had uh, told them not to. And so through, under Ezra's leadership, he brought spiritual reform. And we're going to see that continue to play out here because Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries. They actually work together here. And now we have the third wave returning under Nehemiah's leadership. And the primary project uh, under him is going to be rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Uh, now, Nehemiah, as the passage starts, it doesn't you know, give us this big introduction as to who he is. It's just almost this mysterious figure who just kind of starts talking uh, but Nehemiah is servant to the king, King Artaxerxes in Babylon. And a report reaches uh, the leadership in Babylon, and it concerns, it troubles, uh, it concerns and troubles Nehemiah. It's a report of what Ezra found when he arrived there and some of the things that were going on. And one of the things that gets reported is that the city itself is in a state of disgraceful disrepair. And Nehemiah is compelled to do something about it. One of the great examples or one of the great lessons we learn from his life is that Nehemiah doesn't just set out into action. He'll get there. He's a man of action. But he is first and foremost a man of prayer. And before he gets out just banging away at whatever needs to be done, he goes to the Lord to seek his face and his will and discern what needs to be done. And so our primary lessons this morning are going to come from that right there, uh, from prayer, from Nehemiah's prayer. And here's the things that I want you to hear this morning. First of all, that godly prayer, godly prayer aligns our heart with God's heart. Godly prayer aligns our heart with God's heart. And then secondly, that godly prayer gives rightful shape to our petitions and to our action. It gives godly shape, rightful shape, to our petitions and to our actions. So look with me at Nehemiah 1.1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days 
I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So the first point I want to draw out is this, and I'll be honest with you, I had a little bit of difficulty just writing this down because it seemed so simple and so trite. I had to look at it and go, am I really going to stand up on Sunday morning and say, yeah, the plan of God doesn't always go as we plan? Like that's a big mystery to all of us, right? And as I thought about it, I thought, you know, I was reminded of an old quote that says that good teaching isn't always telling us what we don't know, but it's reminding us of what we do know. And I think we just need to be reminded of this. We see it here, that the plan of God doesn't always go as we had planned. We find things go off the rails, or at least the rails that we had set up. This report that comes to Nehemiah seems to be a surprise to him. It distresses him. It seems contrary to his expectations. And when we consider that the two waves that have already gone uh, went under good leadership and with good support, we can kind of understand why this might be the case. Ezra, the scholar priest, as we identify him, uh, left with a great deal of wealth, if you remember, $180 million in today's uh, monies. Uh, he left with $180 million with his cohort of 5,000 to go back to an already built temple to simply adorn it and to support the, practice, the worship practices there. So you can imagine under capable leadership, full endorsement from King Artaxerxes and others before him, and all of this wealth that he would expect to hear a very good report about a people who are thriving spiritually and thriving in the land. They had gotten all the support and resources that they needed. He expects a good report, and yet that's not quite what he finds. Now, we do know that when Ezra arrived and he found the spiritual condition of the people lacking, that he did set about to initiate spiritual reform. And there was good repentance for sin, and there was a good sending away of those illegitimate wives that they had wrongly married. And so, in a sense, they had responded very well. There was a bit of revival in the land. But we are told that the walls of the city were broken down. Now, for you and me, I don't know, we, we hear that. And I'll be honest, it just kind of goes right over my head, I think. Uh, so, you know, fix them. I don't, like, uh, you know, if you've got a hole in your fence, you fix the fence. And I, I'm not quite sure why all this reaction, you know, I sat down and wept. I mourned and fasted. And, I pray, and it's kind of like, is he just having a bad day? You know, is Nehemiah a real emotive kind of guy? I, I don't, what's the deal here? And so I don't, I think you and I, fully appreciate the significance of a city that is unfortified uh, in this world at this time with the enemies around them. And, and the, the bottom line is that the people themselves are vulnerable. But maybe even more important than that, because the people uh, are for the Lord and the Lord's, the Lord's children, then it looks like even the program of God is vulnerable. And therefore, the name of the Lord is vulnerable. Does that make sense? It's, it's not just their own safety and well-being. That's a part of it. But because they represent the people of God, then God's name, in a sense, is at risk or in jeopardy or, or vulnerable. Uh, now, some people have asked, you know, when did the walls get broken down here? When might this have occurred? Some think that it was kind of a leftover from the, the days that Nebuchadnezzar had attacked and laid waste to the city. I don't think that's it at all. In fact, when we read the text, it seems to be a kind of almost a new and a present issue. 
Uh, most likely we see this happening uh, back in Ezra chapter 4, verses 21 and 23, when they had that early opposition as they began to rebuild things. And I think that's when that occurred. But so here's the opening scene. Let me just kind of try to bring it to a close here on this opening scene. Nehemiah is in a favored position with King Artaxerxes. He's the cupbearer, which means that he would take the cup and its wine or its contents, and he would drink it first to make, to make sure that it wasn't poison so that you know, the king wouldn't be poisoned. How would you like that job? You know? You're just the first to go. Uh, so that's his job. But a cupbearer was a very trusted official. They would have lots of administrative duties. Uh, one of the most trusted people in the kingdom. That's what it says about him. You're my right-hand man. You hand me the beverage that can kill me or nourish me. So that's Nehemiah's position. But not only that, he would have seen all of the support that the king had given to Israel. He would have seen God's hand at work upon Ezra as Ezra came and made requests of King Artaxerxes. He would have seen all of the endorsement, the support, uh, the writings, the funds, all that went with them. So he is in this position, having this vantage point of being able to think, yeah, everything's going to go well. All lights are green. Program straight ahead. That's the vantage point that he has, which is why the report he gets is disappointing and surprising to him. And I think it's fairly easy to imagine the questions that he would be asking here because I think they're the same questions you and I would be asking, such as, God, didn't you lead us this direction? Right? Didn't, you, you took us this way. In fact, you told us in advance. Wasn't your hand at work already? In, in, in the edict that's come from the king to send us home and the support, and even when opposition came to give us letters of endorsement, to give us freedom to govern, wealth, hasn't your hand already been upon us up to this point? Have we not obeyed your commands? Now, I would say that this is one that's probably not worth bringing up before the Lord. Uh, I would say, I don't think that you and I should ever go to the Lord and say, give me what I deserve. Because none of us wants what we deserve. Whenever we go to the Lord, we ought to be begging for God's grace and his mercy. That's what we need. That's what we need. Or, why would you lead us here to this point to begin this project only to now be potentially disgraced. Or if you're for us, if you're in our favor, then why are we finding this particular challenge? And so there's a realization that I think we all have to accept. If you're ready for this one, this is really profound. You ready? God's people face trouble. <laughs> Again, this is another one of those duh kind of comments, right? Uh, yeah, we know this to be true, but let me flesh it out for you so it's not just an abstract principle form. Your marriage will come under attack. That will happen. Your business will have lean days. Your, your relationships, even with Christians, will be strained at times. Your leaders, even Christian leaders, will disappoint you. Uh, your health will be compromised. It will occur. And the check engine light in your car will come on, right? And not less frequently because you happen to love Jesus. Uh, and so maybe the bigger question is this. 
Why are we surprised when those things happen to us? Why does it catch us off guard or knock us off some sense of being on God's program when these bad things happen or unwanted things happen? And I think the answer is this, that I think many Christians have been subtly or not so subtly affected by the message of the prosperity gospel, which is that if you just love Jesus, then you're going to be healthy, wealthy, wise, and with a big head of hair. You know, it's just all going to play out for you. I don't know why you're giggling right now. Clearly, I don't subscribe to the prosperity gospel. (laughs) Big head of hair, big chin of hair, maybe. Maybe I can pull that off. The reality is we're not guaranteed a trouble-free life in the scriptures. And if you're under the impression that Christians are, then I'm here to disillusion you. And it's good to have illusions dissolved, okay? Because Jesus, who is not only our Savior, but our teacher our master, our Lord, the one to whom we're an apprentice, the one that we are following, says very clearly, in this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. That's the perspective that we need to have. But as long as you and I walk this earth, we need to recognize we're living against the grain of the culture around us. We're living in a world that is now contaminated by sin. And it distorts, it disintegrates, it affects, and it changes even good things. Uh, And even though we are in Christ Jesus and he is in us, the sin nature is still in us. And there is this war within us. You know this. The Apostle Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 7, right? We, We know this, or excuse me, Romans 7. We don't do what we want to do. There is this tension, this tug of war within us. And sometimes the sin nature wins. The reality is this, that until the return of Christ Jesus, trouble will be a constant companion for Christians. Don't be surprised. It's going to be there. Um, I think, however, when trouble arrives, it is an occasion for us as to how we will respond, how we will look at it, what we will do. Uh, And the question I want to ask you is this. This might be a bit of a provocative question or a new line of thinking for some of you. It could be your dinner conversation this afternoon, but... Are you a Christian simply because of what you can get out of it? Or are you a Christian because it's the right posture to be in in relationship to the Lord? Does that make sense? In other words, I think a lot of people are still, I mean, they, we all of us, I think, came uh, to trust in Christ as our Savior because we really wanted forgiveness from sins which comes only through faith in Christ. And that's what we wanted, and that's the right thing to want when we come in and when we enter into faith. And yet some of us have never moved past that to see that this is just the right place to be in relationship to the God who is there. In other words, he is the creator. He made us. We're the creation. He's God most high. He made us to delight in him and to be his worshipers. He is eternal with no beginning and no end and we were made to enter into God's life, not, not the other way around. You see, I think there's a lot of Christians who continue to live as what I would call religious humanists, which basically say, I'm going to believe in God so that he'll come into my life and make my life a little bit better. And I, I, they fail to recognize that God is the central being of the universe, not me. 
And I am privileged to be able to enter into God's life through faith in Jesus and be a part of the eternity that he has constructed. The other view is too small. It's too small. You have a God that you're using. And I would say it's not even a God at all. It's just an accessory to your life where you are God. And so we need to move past this. Yes, we enter because we want salvation. That's why one becomes a Christian, but we grow, we mature, we move past that as we understand that we have been privileged to enter into God's life in his eternity. So how we respond to trouble, I think, and opposition, it's very telling of us, uh, of our theology. In other words, are we living in a human-centered life or are we living in a God-centered life? Um, Now, I don't think Nehemiah is a religious humanist here, and I can tell because of his prayers. They reveal his heart. We we are told that he he heard these things. He wept, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. Doesn't this remind you actually of uh, Ezra back in chapter 9? When he he heard the bad report, when he saw what had happened from the first wave exiles, and he looked at it, and he was just grieved. You know, Nehemiah and he are just cut from the same cloth here. And this reaction, this isn't just a childish, you know, I didn't get all that I wanted on my Christmas list. You know, this isn't an immature frustration. But what Nehemiah is really concerned about here, concerned for here is the name of the Lord. That's his primary concern. He certainly is concerned about his countrymen, their safety, and the city. But all of those, in a sense, reflect upon God and his reputation and his name. And that's what his concern is about. And that becomes especially clear as we look at his prayer. Um, Look with me in verse 5. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. For your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands... Then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and by your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to this prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of of this man, I was cupbearer to the king. A couple observations I want to make about this prayer. First of all, it is a wonderfully theological prayer. I cringe to say that because when you guys hear the word theological, I think a lot of you glaze over. Oh no, uh, theology is great. It's the study of the nature of God. What could be better? And it's a wonderful theological prayer. Or another way of saying it is, it is a wonderful God-centered prayer. That's the concern of it. It begins with reflecting upon the nature of God and then allowing those truths to inform and give shape to the petitions that follow. It starts with God. 
Now, I want to offer a little bit of a caveat here. We never want to turn prayer into a formula, okay? We don't want to do that. But we learn a great deal from looking at the prayers of the saints that have gone before us. And one of the things that's really common among them is that their prayers often begin with a rehearsing and an affirmation of who God is, of his very nature. And then the shape of the prayer flows out of that. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in doing that same thing. And so our second main point here this morning is this. Through prayer, we realign our heart with God's heart. We realign our heart with God's heart. Um, I think prayer, as we see it displayed for us here in this passage and throughout Scripture, really is an awful lot like tuning an instrument. Um, How many of you play a stringed instrument? Well, let me say this. How many of you have a stringed instrument at home? How about that? You own one. You don't play it, but it's there. Okay. And one of the, if you have a wooden stringed instrument at home, you know this to be true. Fairbanks is rough on them. And they don't hold their tune for very long, right? We have a, just a wide variance of temperatures here. It's cold in the morning. The sun shines all day. Room warms up. We have dry climates, and so the wooden instrument is constantly expanding and contracting, and it's changing the tension against the strings, and it takes like, you know, a day, two days, and the the tune of that instrument is lost because of all of the expansion from the environment around it. Uh, this, my, my son plays the cello. Some of you know that. Uh, I take him to practice every Friday, and I sit with him during the practice. This last week, I fell asleep in their practice. It was a little bit embarrassing. I was in the studio and there they are playing, and I was <laughs> conked out in the chair. But one, I don't know why I shared that with you. Um, <laughs> parental failure there. Um, Aiden was deeply ashamed. But anyways, we, the first thing that they do uh, in, their, um, in their playing is, as they sit down and, and sit cello to cello, uh, they tune. Um, they tune to uh, an instrument, and then they tune to one another. Uh, it sets the whole time. And if you, and if you fail to do that aspect... You know, well, it's horrendous. It's horrendous. And, and friends, I think, I think when we pray, it's an awful lot like tuning our instrument, tuning our heart, aligning our heart with God's heart. And one of the ways that we do that primarily is, is that we come and we rehearse who the nature or what the nature of God is. We remind ourselves of, of who he is and whose presence we're coming into. Do you do that? Do you pause? Do you let it sink into you? You're coming to the God of the universe, the one who made all things that are and made them for himself and has every power at his disposal. Do you remind yourself of his attributes and his character? Because when you do that, you tune your heart to pray in right ways, just like your instrument plays in right ways. We need to tune our hearts I remember uh, a number of years ago, I was, uh, this was actually before we uh, lived here in Fairbanks. Amy and I lived in Yakima, Washington. I was serving as the junior high director of a, a great church there and uh, kind of had a small role in a big church and uh, was paid accordingly. <laughs> and um, uh, we were, although my wife was working as a school teacher at the time, so we were double income, no kids, and that was okay. I missed those days. Those are good days. If you're there, you know. God bless you. Um, but then we learned that uh, we were expecting a baby. We were expecting Aiden. 
And I knew I was going to have to make a shift from being double income, no kids, to my income and a child. And, and I just remember thinking, this is going to be hard. I don't know how we're going to do this, Lord. And um, I was reading in the pastoral epistles at the time. And uh, so I, did, I was doing my devotions, and I came to that passage in the scriptures that says, he who doesn't provide for his immediate family is worse than a tax collector or a pagan. And I thought, well, thanks a lot, Lord. You know, that's not what I needed right now. I'm trying to figure out how to prepare, you know, provide for my family. And I'm, I'm scared about this. This is going to be difficult. There's already changes being forced upon us. I don't know how to make these changes. I don't know how to go from the position we're in to the position we're going to. And, you know, how is all of this going to work? And so I began praying about the text that I had, that I had read. And my prayer at that time sounded a lot more like whining than prayer. I think a lot of my prayers do, if I'm honest. But what hit me was at the beginning of my prayer, I commonly, as I do, addressed the Lord and said, Father, and then it hit me. I mean, I just like, could hardly get any further than that. Because here I was as a, as a fairly new husband and going to be a father and a dad concerned about how I would provide for my family. And here I was going and addressing whom? My father, my heavenly father. Which is not just a title, but it's a description of his relationship to us and his covenant loyalty to us, his love for us, the way that he cares for, provides, protects, all the things that a father should be are perfectly in God himself. And so I'm wrestling with this tension of how do I do these things? But just in that one moment, and I wouldn't say it was even an intentional moment of affirming and rehearsing the nature and the attributes of God, but by virtue of just simply identifying him as father, it brought reassurance to me that in as much as I'm feeling responsible for these things, how much greater does my heavenly father take care of them in my life? Does that give shape to our prayers? Does that affect our petitions? Absolutely. I, I both pray with, with greater humility and greater confidence, right? Lord, I know this doesn't rest completely on me because you're upholding me in this. And I can pray confidently. And so it affects us in, really in two ways. So we realign our heart with God's heart when we pray. We remind ourselves of the nature of God. Uh, and, and we see Nehemiah doing this here. He starts by saying, the God of heaven. This phrase, it might be lost on you just now, and I appreciate Pastor Josh picked up on this, and he selected the perfect song that you guys belted out just before we started the sermon, right? King of heaven, God of heaven. The, this phrase is very common here among the post-exilic time. It's a phrase that we saw first appear in Daniel, while they're in exile, it was repeated through Ezra, particularly in the prayers of Ezra, and now we find it again in Nehemiah. And it is in contrast to what we might, uh, we might hear sort of the everyday person talking about there in a polytheistic word, world. They might be talking about the God of the seas, or the God of the air, or the God of the lights, or the God of fertility, or the God of the ground, or these other things. But in contrast, Nehemiah is reminding himself, you're the God of heaven. Of all, he's reaffirming the supremacy of God, the grandeur and the majesty of God. Does that affect his prayers? Yes. It gives shape to his prayers. He goes on to talk about the one who keeps his covenant of love to those who fear him. 
Here we're talking about the Hesed love of God, the loyal, unfailing love of God, the love of God that acts consistently and with trustworthiness. Now, and we could go through this prayer line by line, uh, reaffirming the attributes that are, that are stated here. I don't think we need to do that. But I, I just want to lay this out to you by way of principle that this is a way we ought to learn how to pray, to rehearse for ourselves the nature of God at the beginning of our prayers to inform our petitions. Again, as I said earlier, reflecting upon God's nature, I think it does two things. Number one, it gives us humility. We remember just who it is we're addressing and the power that he has and the majesty that he has. The God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Uh, Derek Kidner, who is a scholar I've been reading a lot because of his expertise on this particular time period and these, these books, he says it this way. It's, it's such, a, such a great reflection on this prayer. He observes that it, it mounts immediately to heaven where the perspective will be right and it reflects on the character of God not only for its encouraging aspects and staunchness of love, but first of all, for the majesty which puts man, whether friend or foe, in his place. (laughs) Isn't that good? Acknowledge God for who he is and where he is, and you'll pray better. Uh, You've probably all heard of the the acronym uh, ACTS, right? Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication as almost a model of prayer. And I, I'll be honest with you, I always thought it was just kind of a nice, tidy little gimmick or a preacher's tool because we do whatever we can to get you to remember stuff. But you know, if I'm honest with you, as we look at many of the prayers in the scriptures, we find that they follow this pattern, such as Nehemiah's. And lastly here, reflecting upon God's nature, it gives shape to our petitions. I would say it helps us to pray with the grain. It helps us to pray confidently in the ways that we know now that God is already inclined to act because we have rehearsed for ourselves his nature, his activity, and his concern primarily even for his own name. Um, Nehemiah, as we see here, is not just calling upon God to do what Nehemiah wants him to do. But as he recognizes whose presence he comes into, he asks God to act in a way that is for the glory of his own name. Uh, There is a great anecdote uh, that during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was purportedly asked if God was on his side. And uh, Abraham Lincoln is reported to have replied, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. And that inversion of perspective, which isn't just calling God down to do my bidding, but rather aligning my life to be about his will and what he wants, is the same inversion that we need to find in our prayer life. And we see that this is not only the case for the man Nehemiah here, but it is also the case for the God-man, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who in the garden came to his father and said, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. And so this morning we're going to come to the Lord's table and we're going to rehearse for ourselves the gospel 
the way that we saw the God-man, though he was God, inclined his own heart to his Father's will for our good and for his Father's glory. So I'm going to pray for this, and then I'll ask those who have been prepared to serve if they would come. Let's pray. Father, we're privileged to call you just that. I, pr- I pray, Lord, that we would know you better through your word, the way you have revealed yourself, that we would reflect upon it and take it seriously and allow it to give shape to our own heart and to our own petitions. May we, Lord, not be concerned simply that God would be on our side, but would we align our lives to be on your side, your will, your program, your mission. May we be about what you're doing. May we align our hearts with your hearts, Lord. We thank you for the meal that is before us, which is not to fill us up, but to remind us how one is reconciled to you. We're grateful for the love you poured out in Jesus, that he would take our sins to the cross, that they would be punished in him and not in us, that his righteousness could be transferred to us if we would receive it through faith. Thank you for his sacrifice. May it impact us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.